Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, October the 8th, 2023. Looks like, though, rather in 2023, we're back in the 1970s or even 1950s with the headlines today. War in the Middle East, Israel declares war, uh, huge amounts of violence, nothing seems to have changed. Um, and all the papers, of course, lead with it this morning. But it's not just uh, Israel, it may be Ukraine, it may be the new Cold War with China. Seems as if we're returning to something. We haven't progressed the idea of progress, the assumption that we would progress, particularly with all this new technology, the internet, AI, Web 3, Web 2, Web 1, nothing seems to have changed. That at least is according to my guest today, Eric J. Larson, is an expert on AI, has an interesting new piece out, Back to the 50s, Reassessing Technological and Political Progress. He's also the author of an important book that came out last year, The Myth of Artificial Intelligence, why Computers Can't Think the Way We Do. The book has done very well. It's already been translated into nine languages. And uh, Eric is uh, busy touring Europe. He's joining us, though, at the moment from Bryan, Texas. So, Eric, are we back in the 1950s? Did we ever leave the 50s? What's the point of your your new piece? In um, uh, A very interesting piece, very provocative, uh, about a return in many ways to the 1950s. Yeah, you know, I, I don't mean in the back to future sense that we're back in the 1950s. What I mean is, if you if you look at the 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 literature coming out of, you know, Stuart Brand, Wired magazine in the 1990s, this 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 feeling about what the next century, the 21st century that you know, obviously we're in right now, we're two, you know, over two decades in, in the new century. Um, the, the idea was that we were going to radically decentralize and we were going to sort of push creativity out to people because we had created these networks and, um, you know, the World Wide Web. And, and it, just, it just turned out that that never happened. And we ended up with this sort of, sort of corporate, you know, bureaucratic, monopolistic companies controlling our data. We have surveillance problems. We have kind of new digital McCarthyism, I call it. And so it, it, it just seems like we're repeating all the mistakes that we've actually went through in the, in, in, in the, you know, the 20th century. Um, and the really troubling part for me is that no one seems to notice it. Everybody thinks we're on this rocket ship of progress. And I see it as a very regressive, not necessarily innovative time. And so I, I just felt compelled to come out and sort of say, you know, you can't fix a problem unless you can admit it. Um, you know, we're, we're not where we think we are. <laughs> we're somewhere in the past and we're actually, we're, we're actually repeating mistakes that we've done. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, that was the motiv motivation for the piece. That's the motivation for my next book. That's that, 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 that's, yeah, I mean, it, Going after Stuart Brand is is pretty easy these days. I mean, even Stuart Brand probably goes after Stuart Brand these days. I'm actually going to his Long Now Foundation on Tuesday. Hopefully, I'll bump into him. I've always been 
a big admirer of him as a person. I'm, I'm never been particularly convinced with his uh, with his version of history. But isn't that too easy now, Eric? Everybody's going after it. I mean, you're not really in a minority. If anything, the zeitgeist has shifted so dramatically that there are very few defenders of of, of that uh, idea of history being inevitably progressive and leading to some sort of utopia of one kind or another. I mean, who's still arguing that? Maybe Mark Andreessen, but very few others. Yeah, no, I, I actually disagree with that. I think that the, the ethos in Silicon Valley is still that, um, you know, something like Moore's Law is governing history. So our, our theory of history is still radically tied to information technology. And I think that this idea that we're, we're, we're undergoing radical change and, you know, the, the, there's a inserting a premise between exponential progress and exponential change. So technology can be ex, exponentially changing, but we can not be making progress as, as, you know, a civilization as it were. Um, but I think like what generally tends to happen is people equate the, progress of the you know if te if if technology is rapidly um exponentially um progressing then the 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 world that we live in is also doing that and so i think that that's actually still the dominant ethos now you can bring up existential risk people and so on that's the flip side of the same coin right i mean if if we're going to have super intelligent killer robots that are so smart they can take us over then we have accomplished a technological miracle. It's the same argument. It's just, do you want to be Armageddon or do you want to be utopian? It's the same argument that, that we're now, just- You talk about, and I'm quoting you here, in Silicon Valley, you're talking to me from Brian in Texas. I'm not sure when you were last here, but my sense about Silicon Valley is it's mo mostly made up of programmers and entrepreneurs of one kind of technologist or another who want to make money, it doesn't have much of a vision of history one way or the other. They're focused on the day-to-day -day business of, of building companies, particularly in the, the turbulence of the, the economics of the 2020s. Are there still big thinkers out there? I mean, I mentioned Andreessen. He's a big thinker. Maybe he's wrong. I guess Musk, although he's not even in Silicon Valley anymore. So when you talk about in Silicon Valley, are you talking metaphorically? Or are you talking literally? So I was I was there. I've, I've been there twice. Um, the first time was back in the 2010, 2000. So you've been there twice in your life? I bet. No, 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 no. I've lived there twice. Oh, okay. I, okay. I, my, my first company was DARPA funded and we were investigating um, venture um, capital possibilities. And I was there in 2010, 2011. I was there for about two and a half years. I was back in 2016 as an advisor for another company meant, you know, went all, you went through the whole dog and pony show with that, with that company. And, um, you know, that, that's another story, but so I, I understand Silicon Valley or I, you know, I haven't been there since I think the, you know, 2017 was the last time I lived there. Um, I lived in Atherton, actually. So if you're if you're familiar with the area, so I, I'm not just talking about Silicon Valley in the abstract. What what I'm saying is that if you went to Silicon Valley in 2005 um, after the dot com crash, you would see a you know a, some entrepreneurs that were kind of in their garage. I know that sounds sort of formulaic, but they and they were they were starting a new wave of innovation nobody's starting anything in their garage anymore it's all hyper funded 
I mean, Microsoft put $13 billion into OpenAI to develop what they call AI, which is what they call um, generative AI, which is essentially just massive statistical analysis of data, which is a very sort of non-Silicon Valley idea of creativity, right? Um, Although, to be fair, I mean, there are a lot of people who still believe that AI can be... um, creative uh, as we were speaking i just got a an email from somebody called chris krug on ai's creative renaissance whatever that means so there are some people i mean ai is a big deal whether you like it or not it's changing everything and it's allowing potentially creatives to be more creative or perhaps it's undermining their creativity oh, i i actually don't think that's true so so um first of all the marriage of data to AI. So AI used to be a diverse field. Um, you know, I've been in the field for 20 years. I did a PhD at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, you know, I started two companies. I've been working in the field um, for 20 years as a natural language processor, actually. Um, and and so I do think that the innovation that made uh, the GPT um, models possible and then the, 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 the conversational chat GPT, I do think that was actually an innovation. Okay, it actually came out of a 2017 paper from Google Brain and Google Mind researchers. And I think there was a a yeah, Google certainly missed the bus on that one. Yeah, they they sure did, because they actually published the paper. And then it was actually it was the upstart open AI that actually took it and ran with it. But so I do think that's an innovation. But I think in the scope of innovations, marrying huge surveillance data sort of, you know, I mean, marrying data to AI and saying this is now AI is a massive mistake. And we, we just don't have anymore the ethos that created Web 2.0, the ethos that created all these, the, you know, these, these interesting companies. We're, we're, we're actually living in the same designs that we had in 2004 from, you know, Kevin Rose and Dig and, and, and you know, Reid Hoffman and, and, and LinkedIn and, 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 and so on. So the Read Write Web is actually the same fundamental model that we had 15 uh, you know, over 15 years ago. So it's, it's very difficult to say that we're in this very, you know, innovative, innovative time when the fundamental ideas that drive sort of, um, um, you know, entrepreneurship and innovation just don't surface anymore. And they really can't surface. If, if you're not, if you don't have five, you know, a, a handful of, you know, if you don't have billions of dollars at hand um, and a server fa- farm the size of a small town, you're not going to get in the AI game anymore. Um, and I, I think that's sort of like Chrysler and IBM of the 1950s. I don't, I don't think this is what we what we intended, frankly. Mm, uh, yeah, I think that's a very interesting observation, comparing the Googles and the Microsofts to the IBMs and Chryslers of the 50s. We are speaking with Eric J. Larson, a real authority on AI. As he said, he's taught it. Um, he's written about it, wrote a very successful book, um, which came out last year the myth of uh, artificial intelligence. And now he's back in the business of controversy. He's just written a piece back to the 50s, reassessing technological and political progress. So, Eric, the the piece that you wrote is, is less, I mean, there is some stuff about tech in it, but it's more about political, cultural, economic history. Is there a connection between the lack of progress or 
the fact that nothing seems to have changed since the 50s and perhaps the myth of the digital revolution what are the, yeah. what is the connection so i think that you know honestly the fundamental error that we made was when the 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 web became a repository of the thoughts of human individuals it became a repository of tweets blogs comments long form articles everything images right and what happened in silicon valley is actually completely understandable but it made the world a kind of surveillance dystopian um top-down world which is you know the the tech entrepreneurs realized that we have all this data and it's all been freely provided and we don't have in a lot of cases we just don't have copyright restrictions and, and, and if we do we're just going to bypass them right um you know and so like what 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 happened was is like all the intelligence that was you know creating the web like remember big projects like wikipedia right like you have these big big community projects where people are coming together and they're actually doing something is really valuable that got sort of co-opted by the 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 silicon valley types and like i, I don't want to sound like they're evil or something i don't think anybody really did this on purpose it was just the easiest way if you have an ad model the easiest way to make money is to have the you know info data about all of your customers and it just was there like the entire web was just open for the taking for data capture right and so i think i think like that was an unforeseen and unintended consequence of a technology that was supposed to push creativity out to people and it ended up doing the, the exact opposite in creating monopolistic companies and 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 i don't i don't think anyone's necessarily personally to blame for that but it's something we have to course correct okay yeah i take the point although again you're certainly not the first or for that matter the last person to to make that observation but i'm curious is the connection between that and say the the war in ukraine or the new cold war with china i mean presumably with or without web 2.0 putin would have still at his eyes, his greedy eyes on Ukraine, or the, the Chinese regime uh, has built up a, an incredibly dynamic and centralized uh, economy. What's the connection between the war in Ukraine and this new Cold War and the failure of tech to really change the world? So, Excellent question. <laughs> um, so what I intend when I bring up that we're back in wars, you know, the, the, if you look at the 1950s, we, we, it started with a, a war that is now called the forgotten war because the minute the Korean war was over, everyone, you know, effectively forgot about it. And I contrast that with the, the, the start of the 21st century when we have the war in, in Afghanistan, then we have the war in, in Iraq. And, and it, it, it's, it's not that I think that we're moving around in some metaphysical cycle. I think that we haven't learned lessons. And the, 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 the idea of tech uh, 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 and, and of the web in particular was that it was going to change the world in fundamental ways so that we would stop walking into the same trap. And if you look at the 21st century, it's full of financial collapses. We had the dot-com crash 
2001. We had a severe crash in 2008, um, you know, as, as everyone knows. And, we, you know, we had two, we fought two wars that are now forgot, essentially forgotten wars. Like we, we actually are just doing the same thing as all those troglodytes of the 1950s. And so what my question is, what did technology buy us if we're making these same kind of mistakes. It's not that technology caused the mistakes. It's that it didn't liberate us from what we thought. Well, well, I know I, I take your point, but why should it? So let's say in September 2001, the internet had existed. It was a revolutionary thing in some ways. It changed the world in some ways. And yet uh, on 9-11, the, the the technology used to, so to speak, bomb Washington D.C. and New York had nothing to do with digital technology. So so how are the two connected? And you talked about the two wars of the first part of the 20th century. Those were a consequence of 9/11, uh, which would have happened with or without the internet. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a fair point. If you want to, if you want to fast forward and and get into programs like Prism, Prism, which was which which as I'm sure you know was an NSA uh, program which basically hoovered up all Verizon phone data and was you know as Snowden pointed out was very very critically close to being un unconstitutional. I think it probably was. Um, but so that was a that that was a constitution uh, or a consequence rather of technology. So what what happened in the wake of 9/11 was using digital technology in a way that reminds us of J. Edgar Hoover, right? This is my point. It's it's your point is you know you said my point was well taken. Let me say back to you your point is well taken i'm not claiming that 9 11 wouldn't have happened if the technology was different and i'm not claiming that it it was caused by digital technology what i'm claiming is is that the response to it followed a big data you know big data ai pattern that has largely resulted in right social ills right and and by the way that 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 program prism as far as we know never caught a single terrorist so it was just right, so, I, so so yeah. let's talk about yeah. j edgar hoover i'm not sure if you've read beverly gage's magnificent book biography of him it won the pulitzer prize last year she writes uh her, her narrative of of hoover as a g-man is as you say hoovering up shall we excusing the pun the data and that began in the early 20s with his career and then it it lasted for 50 years yeah so again i i don't really understand what the technological angle is uh, edgar j edgar hoover was in the business of surveillance from the 1920s through to the 1970s if he'd been around in the internet age he would have used digital technology to to, to watch us so I don't see. Yeah, but we were so. Yeah, you're not seeing um, what what I'm saying, which is why are we repeating? Why shouldn't we repeating? History is a... J. Edgar Hoover. Why shouldn't we repeat J. Edgar Hoover? Well, because that's the nature of things. We always repeat, isn't it? I so, mean, so we're, we're going to get to your theory of history. Yeah, but you you seem surprised, Eric, by something which to me seems obvious. 
But history always repeats itself. That's the nature of things. And whatever people in Silicon Valley say, you're trying to distance yourself from Silicon Valley. But on the other hand, you're taking their ideas about change seriously. Well, look, I... And it was obvious to a lot of people, including myself, for the last 30 years, that these ideas were nonsensical or were the product of people without any historical literacy at all. So, so let me put your question back to you then. And I know you've been writing about this for years. Um, you know, why hasn't it stuck? Why don't people, why isn't there a greater awareness that we're repeating past mistakes? I mean, that's one of my questions that I'm struggling with right now is, look, if it's so obvious, as you just pointed out, why isn't it generally understood in the culture that it's so obvious, right? I mean, what, what, what's going on? You know why? I mean, I did a great show and, and this might be an opportunity to remind everyone of our sponsor, um, Liberties Quarterly. All our guests will receive an annual subscription, help them understand the world. We did a great show with Leon Weaseltier um, on his recent piece, uh, um, Eric, talking about America being a teleological nation, believing in change. Yeah. And so this is rooted in the, the metaphysics, the soul of this country. It's just the way it is. It was built on the idea of change, on the little city on the hill. And it's always the case. Some countries are backward looking. We did a show earlier this week uh, on Britain as the reverse, a country built on looking backwards rather than forwards. It's just the nature of America. And that's why it was no coincidence that digital technology was invented in Silicon Valley rather than in the UK. Yeah. And Even I, I, British scientists probably in some ways were more influential in the building of the Internet than American technologies. Uh, you could certainly make that case. Um, look, I'm not I'm and I do agree that it's it's in the DNA of 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 sort of the Western world, but more particularly in the United States to sort of endlessly believe tomorrow is going to be better. And it's very difficult to argue with that position. Um, are we going to go back to some sort of, you know, existentialism in the wake of of, you know, the, the 20th century Holocaust or something? Are we going to become Sartre? And like, I, I don't think that's the answer. And that's not actually what I'm what I'm pointing to. What, I, what I'm saying is, is that many, many, many of of. Let me actually let me illustrate this with with an example in supersonic flight, and I'll try to make this brief, but I think it will trenchantly make the point um, in the 1950s um, the it was actually it was. Um, was it Kennedy or, or uh, uh, who was the guy before Kennedy? I don't remember. Eisenhower. Um, Eisenhower. I think it was actually Kennedy. So, so in the early 1960s, um, Kennedy, in addition to... I have to tease you, Eric, a little bit. Uh, and you're, you're a nice guy, so you'll take this. But you've just written this huge piece about the 1950s and you don't remember the name of the American president who dominated the entire decade. I, I'm, well... I'm, I don't like being on camera, so <laughs> so I'm sorry. Don't blame um, technology. If you're going to write about history, you've got to know history. Yeah, I know it. I know it. I know it. It's just, uh, you know, it was a blind spot. But, um, yeah, so 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 Kennedy announced, uh, it, it was, you know, a couple of years before the landing on the moon announcement, 
um, that we were going to have commercial supersonic flight, which is called supersonic transport, right? Um, it's called supersonic transport because maybe FedEx, you know, is supersonic. So it's not, it's not just, um, you know, um, uh, taking people from New York to LA for their holiday. It's also just supersonic commercial flight. So supersonic transport was supposed to happen in the early 1960s. We had a huge project. And the, the, the reason I'm pointing this out is the way that we think about progress is fundamentally flawed. That's what I'm trying to get to. Okay. And my point is my overarching point in the article and in the upcoming book is that if we think about progress differently, we'll actually make it will actually make progress. So we so billions of dollars were spent on what was called the Boeing 2707, which was supposed to be a supersonic uh, airplane. In the end, we ended up building hundreds of 747s. They were comfortable. The fuselage was larger. Um, they went just plenty fast enough. Um, everybody was happy. And the supersonic flight idea, it was actually... Nixon tried to kill it, but ended up approving it because there was still support for it in 1969. And it was actually killed in 1971 by Congress um, after huge cost overruns. And, and so, but if you look at the science of trying to get a commercial airliner profitable that goes over Mach 1, it's impossible. The materials change. You can't use cheap materials like aluminum alloys. You have to go to titanium. Um, you have, you know, you know, problems with using the fuel efficient engines because you've got to push like about three times the amount of fuel through them. So you've got huge, huge costs doing it. The range shortens. This is just a product of, of the physical. This is just a, a consequence of aerodynamics in the physical world. The range shortens so you can't do trans-Pacific flights. That's why the Concorde never flew to Tokyo from, from San Francisco. I had about a 6,700 kilometer um range and you know the the uh, 787 dreamliner has about a uh a 14,000 kilometer range and, th and that's a you know that that's that's actually a, a product of the speed um and and the drag coefficient there's just nothing you can do about this and we in in since the 1950s we have been unable to make supersonic flight but i i think again you're, you're barking up the wrong tree here i would argue that if there's one industry or one technology where there has been remarkable progress since the 1950s, it's the the um, air travel, air, the air, aircraft industry, in the sense that it's way safer now. And oh, sure. it actually reflects the ability of airlines and government and perhaps even passengers to work together. So you're only looking at things technologically when the politics and the economics are also connected. I'm going to run a, we're, we're going to come back, uh, Eric. Uh, sure. I want to run a short ad for Liberties. And then I want to come back and talk about Vico because you bring him up, the uh, Italian um, philosopher of history. Maybe he has, he can help us here get out of our bind this perpetual return or perpetual failure to get, uh, to get beyond the present. So I'm going to run a short ad and then we'll be back with Eric last. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, 
of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at Liberties, <coughs> excuse me, libertiesjournal.com. One of the kinds of people you will read about in Liberties is the great Italian his, uh, philosopher of history, uh, Giovanni Battista Vico, 17th century thinker, enormously influential, influenced Isaiah Berlin and many other modern thinkers. And I was curious, uh, Eric, that he pops up at the end. Is he one of the ways of rethinking uh, American obsession with progress? Did you find Vico instructional? I did. Um, and, and, you know, I, there was a specific tie in that I, I, I ended up, uh, you know, um, pulling him into my next project. And uh, frankly, I was, um, a little reluctant to do it because he's, he's sort of unknown unless you, um, you, you're very, very keen on, on philosophy. Uh, James Joyce, the famous author, said that he reads Vico, but he, he, he doesn't understand him, but he just finds him inspiring. And so, and, and actually the- And I'm the, sure Vico would have said the same about James yeah, Joyce. Yeah, probably about Joyce. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. So, so Vico is, is a little bit of a, is sort of under the radar type of, type of character. He was a counter enlightenment character in the enlightenment. But what he argued was sort of, um, you know, the Cliff Notes version is like very common sense. He said, basically, all civilizations rise and then they decline. And he asked this basic question. His book was called The New Science. And so he was trying to do science before we had sociology and so on. He said, why do civilizations invariably rise and then decline? What happens? We don't have any evidence of a society that just keeps going upward and upward and upward and upward. Um, and, and so I thought that was instructive for modern Americans. You know, I'm, I'm an American, you know, I'm not against the country, but I thought that was instructive because all the evidence we have is that, we, that there's going to be a decline. So the, there's a couple of questions. One is, how do you stop the decline? Uh, if it's inevitable, you can't stop it. But if, it, if, if it's something that we can do, what do we do? And I wanted to focus more on, you know, how, how, can, how can we change that? But that, that's what he said. And interestingly, his causal mechanism, as it were, for the decline was a failure to communicate. So the language starts to break down. So people can't understand what the other person is saying. They get mad for reasons that, you know, they shouldn't get mad. Uh, really, this is actually, this is actually what, what he said. The language changes so that we, be, we, we get, we adopt rational uh, language and, and institutional language so that we can build the sort of society that we can all live together. And by that very fact of building that rational and institutional language or putting that in place, rather, um, you know, we end up fighting each other and we can't agree on terms. And so I think it gets into this idea that we're all sort of individual atoms bouncing around the social universe. And so there's no, you know, this could expand indefinitely outward. But I found that a, a fascinating simulacrum of social media, right? And so I started wondering, is Vico right? And is social media the evidence that we're actually on this weird decline? Um, and you know, like, how do we stop it? Of course. So that's why I brought him in. Um, you know, I think he's an underappreciated, but 
but very important thinker. Um, you, you know, I'll just add this as an addendum. The generally speaking, the Enlightenment, Voltaire, and so on. Um, the Enlightenment thinkers generally thought that we're going to use science and technology, and then we'll just sort of be on this escalator, and things will just keep getting better. We'll cure disease. We'll cure this. We'll cure that, and so on. And you know, we did cure a lot of diseases, and the average, you know. GDP of most countries is vastly better than it was before. And, you know, there, there are, there are lots of room for debate here, but you know, the world sort of in a lot of ways has gotten better, but we also did, um, you know, wage two world wars in the mid, in the mid 20th century. And we're now involved in another war in Ukraine and China is increasingly aggressive about Taiwan. It's not clear at all that this sort of escalator vision of the enlightenment was true. So someone who like Vico, who says like, it's actually a cycle and the, the, the wisdom says, where are you on that cycle? That's how you, you make progress. I felt like that was a really valid, valid, uh, valuable point. Yeah. Yeah. And you write in some detail about Vico in the piece. It's a good piece. So we have, I think most people would agree history doesn't seem to be advancing we keep on falling back into the same patterns and problems today it's israel palestine yesterday it was ukraine tomorrow it might be china and taiwan and uh, alienation and loneliness and anxiety and, and so on and so forth how can we use vico um or vico's ideas eric in the future to build on some of this new technology maybe you're right maybe ai isn't quite as revolutionary as some people suggest but it is interesting and important technology or making machines think and work what can vico teach us about the world after 2023 particularly in what you call silicon valley well i mean so the first thing i would say that's more directly relevant to Vico would be um, the language problem. And so I think, you know, frankly, when you have network effects and you have platforms like Twitter or whatever it's called now, X, um, you know, where you have, you know, or, or, or Facebook or Meta, where you have a billion, billion users, you know, there's, there, it, it's obvious that the, the stakeholders in those companies made a ton of money because you've got a customer base and you find you, you have an ad model where you can actually you can actually monetize it. And so if you if you got a billion customers and you're running ads, you know, if you got 13 percent or 14 percent of that, you know, productive, you're you're probably making, you know, you, you know, huge, huge revenues and profit. So I think like we we sort of hacked the Internet in the sense of capitalism. Um, and and in the sense that, you know, we could figure out how to make, make a profit. But what we did was we created platforms that are so general that people don't sort of know who's telling the truth or not. Like, you know, in the old days, if you if you Googled a, you know, a website and it had some weird graphics and a, you know, like a Nazi symbol on the side and the guy was talking about, you know, something, you would realize that this is a crackpot. This is somebody that I should not be listening to. But if you go on, you know, social media today, it's extremely difficult to tell who's telling the truth and who's not telling the truth. It's uniform and vanilla, everything, right? That made a ton of money for the people who own the companies, but it created a huge problem with us being able to converse with 
with, with ourselves in a, in a way that 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 preserves the democracy. We just can't have a democracy when people don't know what's right or don't know what's true and what's. I'm not right. sure if Vico would care about that. Though he would probably be a skeptic yeah, of democracy he... in the first place. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, remember that's the tradition <laughs> of. Uh, uh Pareto was very influenced by yeah that's Vico right. and Pareto's analysis of elites suggesting that nothing's changed you talk about these platforms which are essentially American elites wealthy powerful people that hasn't changed since the 50s when you had uh the oil companies and IBM it didn't change from the, the 19th century so if nothing changes if Vico's right or Pareto's right, and you always have these elites controlling things, then do we need to make up myths about change or do we simply accept it? What about the, the bottom 80% or 90% of people who have no power? Give them, I mean, it's, it's, it's bread and circuses. Give them social media. It doesn't make any difference. No one reads it. No one cares except them. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I... I took to reading Hannah Arendt. Um, if you can see, she actually have a portrait of her in my in my house. Right. Um, and 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 she wrote a she wrote a book. She famously wrote, um, you know, her her the phrase "the banality of evil." Um, she was commissioned by the New Yorker to go cover the Nuremberg, Nuremberg trials, and she came away and she just said, "Look, you know, everybody's just doing their jobs." And, and I think like that sort of conformism is sort of what we're facing today. It's I'm not saying that we're, um, you know, um, what's his name from the from the Nuremberg trials. I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not saying anything like that at all. I'm saying that the conformism leads to an inability to move and an inability. To You're change. beginning, Eric, to sound like one of those Silicon Valley people you don't like. Uh, you well, sound like Stuart Brand, who certainly is a nonconformist. Is the answer finally, Eric, more or less conformity? Uh, I think less conformity, and I think we have to we have to find a way. And I don't know the answer. It's over my pay grade to say whether it's government regulation or not. But I think we have to find a way to break up very very large network effect uh, social media technologies, and we've got to basically get the promise out of the web again, or we're we're basically on a decline. I, I, I frankly, I think that that's what's going on, uh, you know. How about uh, the idea, Eric, of, of government regulated nonconformity? I don't think government is in the business of wanting people to not do what they <laughs> want them to do, which is the sort of definition of nonconformity. However, more than any other time in my life, I would be willing to entertain the possibility that in this particular cir circumstance, it's sort of like we're in the Gilded Age again, and somebody's got to break up Standard Oil, right? Look, you wrote about this. We all know you wrote about this. Um, and and um, um, it's, it's almost like if we've got Standard Oil and we don't recognize it, we're going to get more Standard Oil, right? It's almost like we do need to actually turn to the government and say, hey, look, and like that goes against every grain <laughs> of my, my being. But I'm not I'm not sure the market's going to self-correct in this in this case. Um, it doesn't seem to be. It doesn't seem to be. So uh, it seems to be entrenching, actually. So the, the, the problems that we have with maintaining a stable democracy and so on and the problems we have with entrepreneurship 
it's an uninnovative century so far. People don't realize that. Most of the innovations are, you know, 2007, the iPhone, um, 2017, the what made the large language models possible. But more or less, computers got faster, more or less. Um, we, we just had a lot more data to work with. And, 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 and you know, sci fundamental scientific discoveries aren't happening. Fundamental innovations aren't happening. Nobody's in their garage starting new companies anymore. We're in a very draconian kind of world. Right. And Peter famously said, Eric, they promised us flying cars and all we got were 140 characters, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, it was Peter Thiel. I, you know, in full disclosure, I know, I know Peter, um, um, you know, I, the Thiel Foundation funded the research on the book. I, I don't, but, um, you know, I don't, I don't have. If I'd have known you were backed by Teal, I wouldn't have had you on the show. No, I'm <laughs> no, no, I don't have. No, I'm by the way, like, I don't. Yeah, I don't. Uh, we're, we don't. We don't have tea together, coffee together. It's it's just. Um, um, but I don't know. If Peter Teal drinks tea, does he? <laughs> no, he I thought doesn't. he was a machine. I don't think he drinks I, anything. I, I can't. I can't really talk. But the Teal Foundation funded the book, and it, and it wasn't because I'm sort of in cozy with with these, you know with these groups, it, it was just simply because the message is, I think we're not innovating and very troubling. People don't seem to realize that, right? If you go and ask the person on the street, like they'll, they'll say, this is the most innovative century. It's just unbelievable what we've done. It's like new versions of iPhones. What? I mean, this is right out of your playbook, by the way, Andrew. Um, you know, I, and you know, I, 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 anyway, like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna force an agreement between us, but like I, you know, it, it's not an innovative century. I'm I'm willing to go to the mat and and uh, you know defend that, and we're not gonna get there unless we admit we have a problem, right? You know, I mean, 